You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to a very new roundtable episode of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar, and I'm feeling a little naked in the studio today because I am running solo. Uh, we had a little emergency before the start of the podcast, and uh, Tom is not presently with us. I'm not sure if he's going to be joining us. He may pop in towards the end, uh, or he may not join us at all. So this is a first uh, for the podcast um, so uh, we're going to kick right into the guest first. I need to make sure I mention uh, we need to thank R.J. Comer once again for new music uh, and allowing us to use his song Smothered for our Rooted discussion episodes. I think this song fits these episodes perfectly. We're really excited. Thank you, R.J. Make sure uh, you check out his music uh, anywhere you consume or stream your music, iTunes, Spotify, uh, or wherever else you stream or purchase your, your music. So um, really excited about today's episode. We have a great group of people. We have one familiar face, three faces that you don't know. Um, and I, I thought we would just start off. I'm, I'm gonna. I have a feeling their personalities are strong enough that I'm just gonna be here to referee or, or moderate. So <laughs> the, the collective knowledge in this in, in this Zoom is way larger than what what I possess. So I, I'm gonna just try to help guide guide this discussion. Uh, but I thought we'd start off by letting each of the guests introduce themselves. Uh, Bill, if you could start. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, friend. Um, my name is Bill Young. Um, I'm a New York boy, SUNY College of Forestry, Landscape Architecture, and I got a master's out of Pratt Institute. I was at working as a, a common landscape architect, and then I got a job at New York City Sanitation, and I started putting trees on landfills. I met Carl Alderson there, and that launched my career because that said oh my god this guy would actually work on a landfill so my career has been restoring damaged disturbed super funds brownfields all the bad lands and by working on the landfill i actually got hired by uh, the owner of field operations james corner to teach at university of pennsylvania and i've been teaching ecology there for 17 years awesome and and who do you currently work for right now oh <laughs> <So> <laughs> i work for sumco eco contracting they actually have uh, bought out the Dawson Corporation. So okay. everyone knows Dawson Corporation is now Stumco Eco Contracting. So we're still out of Jackson, New Jersey. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Carl, if you could go next. Hey, Fran. Hey. Uh, nice to see everybody today. So I'm Carl Alderson. I grew up on the Jersey Shore. I have a Bachelor of Science from Cook College, formerly Cook College, now the School of Environmental Biological Sciences at Rutgers. And um, I'm a landscape architect. I started my career really um, in the design build uh, landscape architecture world. Um, but uh, my real passion was for natural area restoration. So I sought out employment with New York City Parks and their natural resources group back in 1989. And uh, we had a little bit of an oil spill disaster in New York Harbor in 1990. There were three successive major oil spills. This was on the heels of the Exxon Valdez spill okay. in Alaska. And this uh, precipitated the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. And I've been pretty much working on oil pollution cases 
um, and Superfund cases for the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, okay. at the federal government level, um, oh, 18 years now. Wow. There. So I've been doing restoration work uh, for about 32 years. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. Now, recovery, uh, remediation, uh, and uh, restoration of natural areas. Wow. Wow. Wonderful. All right, Marty, how about you? Well, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting us all to this uh to the podcast it's been i've been listening to it and it's been so great oh um, awesome thank you and uh, really enjoy it and uh, and to be with these esteemed colleagues and friends uh who i've worked with for a number of years so my name is marty McHugh. i grew up in new jersey as well uh i uh, attended cook college and rutgers college i have a, a, a degree in economics and environmental studies and um uh, kind of like the crossroads of what we're going to be talking about today and um, I couldn't handle the organic chemistry and all the other science, heavy science math courses that these guys are really smart about. And so I, I couldn't become the environmental scientist that I wanted to be. So I ended up going to law school to do environmental work. Wow. I, guess I really didn't really want to be a lawyer so much, but my dad was a lawyer. My grandfather was, I had a bent for it, I guess. And, uh, but I knew that that was a way for me to do environmental protection work. Okay. So, um, and I was lucky enough to be hired right out of uh, Seton Hall Law School uh, into DEP as an in-house attorney, and I got—I had a very fortunate career there for 25 years. I got some meet some great people, work in some great programs, and uh, you know, uh, I'm a recovering lawyer now. I don't practice <laughs> law, and I work at uh, Sumco. I'm the regional manager there. We work with—I work with Bill, and we do ecological restoration construction. But um, I did meet uh, Bill and probably Carl and probably. Emil on those early spills in the 1990s uh, when uh, we had 1.5 million, I guess, gallons of, of, uh, of uh, oil, different kinds of oil spilled in the harbor right after Exxon Valdez. And wow. the silver lining of Valdez and the Exxon Bayway spill in Bayonne was that um, we had not been doing restoration for natural resource injuries until Exxon Valdez. And then in earnest, the governments, both the states and the feds, got going on doing the programs and uh and i was involved with the first natural resource damage assessments there uh in the harbor working with uh carl uh, carl and a, a lot of his colleagues um and um from noaa and u.s fish and wildlife service and and the other states and uh and then we start i started the program wow. uh, i started the program with uh john sacco who is now running it and doing an amazing job and uh and that's what we really got a, a good part of the restoration going in the state Went on to become uh, the director of Fish and Wildlife uh, after a stint with NOAA in the Great Lakes, uh, working with Carl's uh, buddies out there on Great Lakes issues. And then when I left DEP, I went to teach. Um, I loved teaching. Uh, I, I mean, I, Cook College was a great college, and um, I wanted to give back a little bit. Uh, we had some great professors. We all know them. Uh, we can talk about those guys later. But uh, got to teach there. So when I left DEP, I went to go teach at Kane University. Then I got called into uh, work on the BP spill, and I stopped teaching after that. I worked on the Louisiana spill with uh, uh, Louisiana and wow. uh, was part of that settlement uh, as well. And then I uh, started my own firm and got into restoration of uh, natural resources uh, after, even more so after Sandy came through, and we started doing green infrastructure, nature-based restoration to create resiliency. Okay. Uh, and we can talk about that. And then... Uh, Fast forward, got to 
work with the Dawson Corporation, which has now become SUMCO. All right. And so it's been a really, really fun career here in New Jersey. And that I get a chance to work with all these guys on the screen, too. And Pinelands. Awesome. We've done awesome. so much for that. And next we have our first return guest. It's been 42 episodes. It's the first time we've had a repeat guest. So, uh, uh, Emil, right. I know I, I know you've been on before, but if you could just give a, a, a quick uh, reintroduction. Sure. Well, last time I didn't go into such detail, and, and these three esteemed gentlemen went into more detail, so I'll do that a little bit now. All right. Awesome. I was lucky enough to be on Bush campus at Rutgers in the heyday of Rutgers ecology in the late 70s with Ted Stiles and Stuart Pickett and Jim Quinn and Joanna Berger and some of the most incredible scientists that this state has ever been lucky enough to, to you know, have at our state university. And um, that's when I pretty much fell in love with the Pine Barrens. Stuart Pickett took me to the Pine Barrens over spring break when I was a sophomore to study mycorrhizal fungi. And that was that was it. That wow. was the end. And I've never left the Pine Barrens. When I went to Wisconsin to get my uh, PhD, I still did my thesis in the Pine Barrens. And um, people in Wisconsin thought I was nuts. You know, going back to New Jersey in the summertime of all places. And uh, then after that, I came back here after I got my degree and was a postdoc at Rutgers for one year. And then in 1989, started working at New Jersey Conservation Foundation. And that's been it. Been there ever since. Uh, doing a variety of things, saving land, stewarding land, uh, dealing with you know, advocating with legislators and government officials for different practices, better practices, whatever it might be. And um, I know my name has been taken in vain by <laughs> people in state government no. plenty of times, but that's okay. That's uh, it's good if some people take your name in vain and some people praise you. Yeah, that means you're probably hitting the sweet spot. Somewhere. You're passionate. So, so I. Um, that's me. Um, I'm familiar with, you know, I studied a lot in the tropics when I was at Wisconsin, had the chance to go to, you know, study on uh, tropical rainforest biology courses, studied all over the United States on different kinds of field trips and, and research projects in the graduate school there. And but mostly I'm a terrestrial forest ecologist, uh, you know, with obviously 30 some odd years of experience in New Jersey. Awesome. Awesome. So as we all know and, and our guests should know at this point, the, the topic today for this rooted discussion was uh, the government's role in restoration. And I, I think what I like about the, the group we have here today, it's it's you're kind of covering it from all all the sides, all the basis. Um, so we should get a, a great wealth of opinion on it. You know, and it's something that we're all familiar with because we deal with it every day. Most of our listeners, not all of our listeners, but most of our listeners aren't in the industry. It, they're they're homeowners from all walks of life, from all over the country and all over the the world. So I don't know that they realize the impact that the government has, both good and bad, uh, in in environmental issues. So th I, I wanted to enlighten a lot of our listeners as to what goes on and and some of the great work and some of the great projects, what some of the issues may be, but just how far this is how how far this has come so i just wanted to throw a few topics out there for discussion not particular questions but topics and i thought there was no better way to start than does restoration even exist without the government i don't know who wants to start 
or or where you'd like to start. But I I thought I'd throw that one out there. Just do we even does this exist? Are we even doing this without government intervention right now? We should start with the government guy. <laughs> All right, go ahead. So I've spent my entire career in either city or federal government. Okay. Uh, and um, back when I was at New York City Parks and we were recovering for oil impacts and rebuilding, restoring wetlands that had been packed by oil spills yeah. in the Arthur Kill waterway, um, you know, uh, this was a fairly new economy. It's, it was hard to explain how it got started exactly. So okay. you have to go back to legislation. Okay. You, you, if you go back to legislation, you're probably starting with the Clean Water Act in 1972. All right. And that mandates that we will protect, preserve, restore. It actually says the word restore in the Clean Water Act, our waterways. So that's a, that's the foundational piece of legislation. And that was under Nixon? Yeah. Was yes. that, that was... In fact, uh, Richard Nixon signed into law the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Okay. And that, the Endangered Species Act. As well as wow. that one, yes. I mean, his uh, his environmental record, just on paper, is extraordinary. Wow. But I would guess that that would not be in the top 10 list of things that Richard Nixon would point to that he was successful at. Uh, um, you know, I think uh, when you go back and look at it, um, it was a bit of a grassroots effort to bring those things to bear. It was a okay. nation who was tired of suffering under significant amount of pollution in the air and water. And, you know, it was a, gra a groundswell and uh, the legislation really came about through um, Congress okay. and right on up to the president who, um, you know, was fortunately willing to sign off on it, which is astounding. It was completely a bar bipartisan effort. A lot, a lot of this came out of the first Earth Day. It was, like you said, it was a grassroots effort where they just got everyone involved. I mean, kindergarten kids were involved and Nixon was the president and said, wow, we're, we're, we're losing our, you know, our, our Earth here. We gotta do something about it. So yeah, absolutely. Bill, I started with remember Earth the first Earth Day? Yeah. I was picking up cans and bottles on the side of the road with all of my friends uh in elementary school wow i yep. do remember it it was it's incredible yeah i i it, it to this day it really informs everything that i do I, I think of it as a you know very fundamental to my my being also i learned a lot about um how people like to throw beer bottles out <laughs> i could name you a half dozen different beer companies in operation in 1970 uh, as a result of our effort there, I think we picked up, <laughs> we probably picked up about 10 trash barrels of Schlitz and Rheingold. <laughs> yeah, and I have a, a vivid memory of probably one of the most powerful television commercials of all time. I'm not sure who sponsored the commercial, but all I remember is, you know, this, this video of horrible chemicals coming out of pipes into rivers and garbage everywhere. And then at the end of the commercial was a native American chief, you know, with a tear coming yeah. out. Of yeah. And it, I mean, it was, you know, I was uh, 10 years old, but it was to this day, it's burned into me, you know, that, uh, you know, it was this freight train that just wasn't going to be stopped. You know, that, that movement at that time, you know, after, 
DDT and, and all the horrible rivers on fire. I mean, it was just, you know, it was time that something had to happen. And, and, and when you figure how long ago that was, there's still such a disconnect. We're really, as an individual, just starting to reconnect those. The science is starting to catch up. We're starting to realize what's happened, what we've lost. And that's just starting to really catch up to us now, but, you know, 50 years later. So it's, you know, 50 years, even with legislation, 50 years has gone by and, and you're still learning other mistakes that we've made that we have to fix. So uh, I know, Carl, you were just starting to touch on it with that. It, is there more that you wanted to add to, to what you said before everyone else weighs in? Well, I'll just name one more piece of legislation, and then I'm going to pass it off to the recovering lawyer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, the, the next one that came along that impacts my work and, and really starts to create the, that economy, that government-fueled economy that is ecological restoration, okay. I think I would point to um, CERCLA uh, or as it's known, Superfund law in 1980. So that that was uh, that came under the Carter administration and actually was signed into law just before the beginning of the Reagan administration. Okay. So that's that's going back 41 years now. And so what Superfund law did was it, it established um, a re regulatory framework for how we would go about first remediating for pollutants, which is under the purview of EPA and then how we would compensate for the injuries from those pollutants and that comes under uh, NOAA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the individual state in which the injury occurred as well as tribes of the United States if they are you know in, impacted. So from there I think um, I'll send it over to Marty to talk about that next big piece of legislation which was the Oil Pollution Act. All right. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, Carl. Thanks for setting up that. Um, you know, all of these laws, and when I was teaching at Rutgers uh, for uh, Professor Goldfarb, another heavyweight um, who used to teach environmental law at Rutgers, and I, I, before I even start, I just want to say a whole show could be how much conservation and how many people have been trained by Rutgers and the and the, and the <laughs> at Cook College yeah. and Rutgers University. I lived on Bush campus too, you know. And how much that has uh, impacted the uh, restoration ecology, uh, uh, you know, efforts. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. Workers has a big reach. Um, but, um, you know, all of these laws, uh, like the Oil Pollution Act, which started after uh, it came into being after uh, Exxon Valdez and the Superfund, um, uh, a lot of it's based on some New Jersey legislation, too. Okay. So for interest, for for. Uh, for instance, uh, the Spill Compensation and Control Act was written in New Jersey uh, and um, by some really smart people, Michael Catania and a whole bunch of people that uh, used to work here. Uh, and uh, uh, then uh, I think he was an assemblyman or state senator, Florio, I'm pretty sure he was assemblyman, um, sponsored that. He went on to Congress, right? And then, he, uh, and then that's how Superfund started. So um, there's a real nice connection between New Jersey and a lot of the conservation and environmental protection laws in our country. Awesome. Um, but um, uh, at the basis of all of these laws that Carl mentioned is something called the public trust doctrine. And uh, that is something that uh, I just recently saw the acting commissioner of D DEP, Sean LaTourette, say, this is a very important doctrine. It's a common law doctrine that came from, uh, 
from England when we started, you know, the United, when the United States started after the American Revolution. And it's a doctrine that says all of our natural resources are held in trust for the benefit of the public, right? And the trustees of natural resources are the governments that manage these resources. And these resources are not, these natural resources are not the government's resources, they're not owned by the government, they're owned by the people. So there are everybody that's listening to this podcast, there are your resources, right? Mm -hmm. And if those resources are injured or damaged by an oil spill or a, a hazardous waste site under CERCLA, or even a, a, a state site that's not managed by the federal government, right? Those resources need to be restored under this, public, under this law. That is the underpinning of Clean Water Act, uh, Superfund and the Oil Pollution Act and some other laws as well. And, um, and so we just really, like I said, and like Carl said, after this Valdez spill, we really started in earnest doing that. Um, and going, you know, trying to figure out how do you put a dollar value to an oil duck or, or an acre of wetland uh, in, in, an, in an area like, like the New York Harbor, which, by the way, at the time that spill happened on 1990, on January 31st, actually 1989, maybe 1990, early in the morning on New Year's Eve, um, we, we, I wouldn't say we had written off the harbor, but we weren't believing you know a lot of the agencies were focused elsewhere and the harbor was not thought to be a great um an important uh, habitat okay and correct me if i'm wrong emil or it, you know it was, it was it's birthplace of the industrial revolution but we really found out how important the habitats in the harbor were for our natural resources when those spills happened and we started seeing the impacts and that the day that i went out there to look at um the spill was the day that I met, uh, and it was his first day on the job. Was Andy Wilner, who was the baykeeper. Okay. And he, you know, I met him on the Lisbon Bar. So all of these laws have an underpinning of the of the public trust doctrine. And the commissioner DEP right now, he really believes truly in that, and it's really nice to see. So we're very fortunate to have those laws, and it's really driving restoration, not just in New Jersey but across the country, and has been. I mean, look what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico after the. Yeah. So. so I'm going to throw this over to Emil, but I'm going to kind of add in a subtopic that I thought of as we were kind of going through this. So Emil, working with government agencies but working for an NGO, I'm curious your take on this. But also with any laws or legislations over time, loopholes can be found or ways around it can be found. Working for an NGO, do you find – in some ways, the laws are too strict, or some ways, their laws are too uh, soft. That there's too much wiggle room, or not enough wiggle room, where things can't get done that could get done. I'm just curious of your take, what how you feel about this topic. Well, it, it, as far as your second question, um, there's examples of that in both directions. Yeah. In some cases, you're hamstrung by regulations that don't let you do the easiest easiest path toward restoration. In other cases, um, you know, the regulations aren't strong enough uh, because sometimes restorations or other kind of work gets done. And it really like the, the one thing that bugs me sometimes is that monitoring week requirements usually sunset after like five years. And then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, these, these things take, take a long time to really for, for you to know if they're really going to work. Yeah. But aside from that, without government, I mean, there'd be nothing, even the biggest NGOs. Um, depend on government grants to do these various important stewardship projects. 
And in New Jersey, it's in particular in New Jersey, most of, you know, the large non-government organizations that, that buy land, the county park systems, the, 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 the municipal park systems, the state, all the state lands, have, if it wasn't for the Green Acres program, you know, which has been billions of dollars since the 1960s to buy land, and now Green Acres is also giving out stewardship grants. Um, you know, there it, it would be a there, there would be only a whisper of what we're actually doing in terms of the land that we've saved. That even if we haven't gotten around to restoring it yet, we can restore it in the future. Um, the rest restoration projects that we've done, for example, you know, there are dam removal projects that Nature Conservancy has accomplished in New Jersey with many other nonprofits. You, you couldn't even name them all. Yeah, it would take too long. But you know that those that money comes from a, a whole potpourri of government and non-government sources. But it's the government sources that make usually provide the match. You know, if, if uh, for example, you know, at our wetlands restoration at the Franklin Parker Reserve, we restored a thousand acres of you know hard-packed, modernized cranberry bogs that you know had basically nothing living in them to these fabulous wetlands and. You know, the money came from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Natural Resource Conservation Service, and, uh, you know, the uh, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and uh, a bunch of foundations kicked in money, but, you know, with because they saw these other matching monies coming in from the government. So, and of course, just acquiring the land itself, you know, uh, you know, we were able to purchase um, it's up to f almost 14,000 acres now. And wow. we've probably spent about, I'm going to guess and say about $15 million purchasing that land, but, uh, oh, probably 5 million of it has come from the green acres program. Okay. So, you know, in order to get the land, in order to store the land, you know, the government is absolutely essential, even if it's, you know, full or partial funding that helps you convince other funders that, you know, they're going to, uh, kick their money in other other donors for you know private donations when they see those partnerships forming you know that's how you put the money together to get get the job done and if if there wasn't if there wasn't a strong government commit commitment at all levels whether it's municipal county state federal you know we we wouldn't be anywhere I mean so don't kid yourself. The NGOs <laughs> couldn't possibly do this without the government. Well, you know, it's funny because that, that was kind of leading me to my next question. I was going to throw this to Bill, just kind of being on the periphery of both. Can NGO restorations exist without government, and can government restorations exist without NGOs? Is that a partnership that without one or the other, the other one falters? Oh, I would. I think you should ask Emil that. Well, well we're going to government. It's going to be open to everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Government. Government. When I look at the work that I do, and we're the contractors, right? Marty and I, mm -hmm. we're the contractors. So we're on the back end when all the legislation and all these laws and all the enforcement is done. We get to do the restoration. I can't think of any of it that's not government funded. When you look at it, we bid work and we get paid to do work, and it has to come from some budget. But I love the whole damage assessment thing because it basically entitles the U.S. to healthy ecosystems. And if a, if a company like BP comes in and has a spill, they owe the public to restore that. And the attorneys have actually negotiated and said to get it 
to get the Gulf of Mexico back to where it was, you have to pay these damages. And for the uh, Gulf of Mexico, it was the BP oil spill was 19 billion. And much of that goes into ecological restoration. So that's a great wow. driver for a ton of work. Yeah, so the government, you know, so there's different programs, of course, the natural resource damage program is near and dear to our hearts. And, um, but, you know, all of these regulations that Emil and Carl and Bill have been dealing with for all their careers, you know, they're, they're, they're structured in a way that, you know, creates a driver for restoration, right? And, um, and even in the context of where we're, you know, government doesn't have uh, endless amounts of money to do this. So we're trying to take, we're taking private funds, right? Where compensation is required under the damage assessment program, or if there's an, an environmental violation and somebody does a project for a supplemental environmental project, uh, you know, under that program, instead of paying their full fine, all of these things are driven by uh, state or federal laws. And they're very, they're super important for this, for this whole restoration industry. Um, even in the context of where we're trying to drive private capital into restoration. So you're aware of uh, wetlands banking, right? So it's a very, um, it's a very uh, expensive proposition to try to set up a wetlands bank. You know, a private yeah. company comes in and has to buy land and then go through the permitting process and put up, uh, put up funds, performance bonds and, and everything, and then they have to negotiate with the with the uh, with the government, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, EPA, and the state, figure out how many credits they could make, and then they got it. Then they come in and they restore ahead of any damage, and then people can buy credits. Even that, even when we're driving private capital into restoration, it's 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 all it's all, you know, goes back to whatever the federal or state law that requires that restoration. Mitigate net loss. We have to replace wetlands. Yeah. No net loss. Mitigation yeah. banking is going to be a whole. That could be a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. You know, and but, and kind of what. Forget, but but don't forget every one of those laws, whether it's the Pilots Protection Act, you know, or the Freshwater Wetlands Act, the Clean Water Act, those happen because of people pushing and advocating. You know, there would be no Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge if it wasn't for Helen Fenske, for example. There would be no Pylons Protection Act if it wasn't for uh, Brooks and Dot Everett and you know Brendan Byrne and a, you know a handful of other people. I mean, and and I'm sure every state in the country, whatever they have, you know, it had to start with a bunch of people sitting around, you know, at their kitchen table complaining about something and fig trying to figure out what could be done. And then, of course, a legislator recognizing that something needed to be done and figuring out how to turn that advocacy into, you know, something in a state house or in, in Congress. But, but, you know, if you just look at the history of every one of these things, it's individual people teaming with NGOs and attorneys and legislators and no other knowledgeable people. I mean, you know, we were lucky in New Jersey to have like the folks that uh, Marty was mentioning earlier, writing some of those early you know, drafts of early legislation and that type of thing. But, and, and I wish, I think it's a little harder now. I think it's a little bit harder now for a small group of people to push for legislative change than it used to be. I don't think that channel of communication is, is what it used to be. Although, you know, uh, hopefully, 
hopefully that'll that'll come back um you know with with some of the pressing issues of the day but um, with you know with climate change and that kind of thing it's going to have to come from 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 the people because you know there's just uh there's so much to overcome and we're just going to have to it's just got to come from the people in my view well we know corporations will advocate for themselves they'll put out large large amounts of money to advocate for themselves not you know and 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 not to paint that in an evil way we had CWRP on to talk about all these corporations that band together that help NGOs and and help match and and do all these right. wonderful things so not to not to paint corporations as as the devil um you know, so many of the guests that we've had on this show and all these great organizations all started around a table. The Xerces Society and, and so many of these other ones started as grassroots efforts. And we do see it here on a local level. And I know we mentioned we had our local watershed on and and um, because they did away with the environmental committee at the local level and, and the, the pressure to build more warehouses and things like that. But it's, it's an uphill battle. It's a small group against – much much larger groups and it's I, I I understand what they're going against um but the, both the government and these NGOs work together for such great purposes and we've seen the amount of work that gets done but there are limitations and I know Marty you mentioned you know funds I was curious what are some of the government's limitations for for progressing forward with restorations where where we've been and where we need to go what are some of the limitations the government has as far as taking this to the next step well um you make a very good point too by the way um uh, before i answer the question the you know things are different than they were when i first started in 1985 uh you know uh the the regulated community corporations and the you know all the companies that are, are regulated by uh, the states and the feds you know, there's been a major sea change um, since then, uh, and they've really, you know, most most people, most companies are in compliance. When they have a problem, they step up and they, uh, and it, it's it's rare these days that we have to kind of litigate uh, these things or really force things. I mean, there's still enforcement, yeah. but they're really, um, especially coming together at the New Jersey Corporate Weapons Restoration Partnership and funding all that restoration. So, and there's a whole, you know, movement within corporate uh, you know, management for environmental social governance uh, within each, you know, within all the corporate stakeholders and shareholders want to see uh, sustainability and environmental protection. So we're very fortunate in that respect. It's just that I think the problems now are even are so much more complicated to deal with in terms of restoration. We've kind of got all the low hanging fruit, the cleanups and the, the big spills are kind of hopefully under control. And and the sites are getting cleaned up, but now these things like, you know, like greenhouse gases and PFAS and all this other stuff is is more is more difficult. So the government's limitation is um, there, there's a number of limitations I think, and a lot of it's people. Um, yeah. You know, like when I started in '85, uh, uh, DEP had 4,000 people, right? And the regulations that we dealt with were like in volumes this big. Now we have less than 2,000, I think, and the regulations are farther than my arms can hold out. And it's very complicated, right? And so um, so there's not, you know, and, and a lot of us that I started, my cohort, they're all retiring. So you have this big brain drain going out of uh, all these agencies right now. And we have really good, really good young people coming up. In fact, Bill and I are working with a group from Kane right now, super smart kids. 
and it's good, but that institutional knowledge is, is, is a, is a, that loss is a problem. And then in terms of all of these complicated problems, um, the, the more difficult ones that we got to deal with, you know, the laws were written back in the 70s, like we, talk, we talked yeah. about, right? So the, so the nails that we were hitting in the 70s were, you know, 1980s, 1970 nails. Now the problems are 2021, right? And sometimes the regulations and the laws don't match up with the new problems. But then when you go to open a law to, to fix it or to enhance it or to, you know, bring it up to date, that's a little dangerous sometimes because then all these interests come in and they try to change things. And it's really kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a, sometimes it gets to be a free for all. Like I was involved with the reauthorization of OPA in 1995 and I did work on the Hill and I testified before subcommittees for that and for the circular reauthorization and it we almost lost the authorities to do natural resource damage assessment wow but a whole group of people banded together to to do you know to to keep those authorities intact a lot of people that carl work with and that uh, emil work with and, and bill work with a lot of smart people and we we were able to do that but so so we have these laws that were written many years ago and regulations that were written, but we have these new modern problems that don't always match up with the laws. You have a great point, and I'm going to throw this to Carl too if you want to elaborate on that. But you yeah. know, the one thing that that I was thinking about actually as you were talking about this with how how many people there are and what the, you know what they're dealing with. Um, and I know as you go from uh, administration to administration, there are changes made. They may get changed one way, back another. You're dealing with budgets, and and you have the public divided. If you want more more government or less government, how stretched are we right now? You know, for what we need to accomplish, how hard is it to accomplish this? Just from an internal standpoint, with with uh, staffing uh, or budgets. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we mentioned all those um, very important early pieces of legislation, but you know, um, as time passes, um, there is of course less and less attention paid to say Superfund law still exists, but the, 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 you know, as the name implies, it had a, there was a fund created, but that fund was allowed to, you know, drain and not really be replenished in order to, um, you know, really address all of the different um, injuries, especially states like New Jersey, where there was an extraordinary amount of industry and an extraordinary amount of injury from those um, from pollution, you know, unchecked pollution. Um, you know, we, we can talk about um, the remaining amount of PCBs, a, a really dangerous chemical that's in the environment that uh, was released uh, large and small areas throughout the state or dioxin in the, in the Passaic River. Um, Look, you know, we are strapped for um, not only a number of people working on these cases, but for talent coming out of the universities. Why are we strapped? The talent's there in the universities. Well, because oftentimes there's just no room for hiring, um, whether there's hiring freezes at the federal level or at the state level. It always seems like we're just we're just competing for funding resources uh, with a whole host of other issues that both state and federal government have to deal with. And also, you know, those pieces of legislation dealt with, you know, our grandfather's issues, you know, in the day when, you know, 
grandpa and dad were working in factories and making a good coin at their factory jobs, some of these companies were also, you know, releasing pollutants unchecked. So we're still dealing with those legacy contaminants, but we have a whole host of new issues that come forward. You know, when you think about pharmaceutical or you think about um, PFOA or PFOS, a shorthand for a couple of man-made chemicals that are released that have to do with non-stick substances like Teflon, what's on Teflon pans, right? Yeah. Those are systemic throughout the environment now. So we've got a whole host of new things. And I would point to climate change as being the most recent of those. And of course, legislation is coming along to address that issue. Um, we didn't have climate change legislation when we started, when Bill and Mark and Emil started. We, so, so I point to uh, just a recent one uh, piece of legislation that I, I, I think is going to be very effective. It just did here in New Jersey, only what, two weeks ago on February 4th, um, Governor Murphy signed into law, uh, Senate Bill 2607, uh, I believe it was. If you, anyone of your listeners wants to look that up, 2607. Okay. Senate Bill 2607. Now, what does that do? That bill finally, uh, will address climate change on the municipal level. And we all know that in New Jersey, we have a thing called home rule, where all of the 500 plus municipalities really um, um, have um, an important role in addressing whatever issue the state has, right? So um, this bill will finally require each municipality in their master plan to address climate change really for the first time you think about master planning and how essential that is for each municipality to put forward that master plan to the state every five years or so um, now when you put forward your housing plan for you, your municipality you have to identify issues that will affect housing and climate change and on and on whether it's utilities or it's recreation, or it's um, uh, stormwater just discharge, or transportation. Um, you must address what the potential climate impacts will be. That's new. It's two weeks old. It's a newborn wow. piece of legislation, and it was bipartisan. So, I to address the question about you know whether or not we um, can all agree on. Um, in a partisan, in a, in a nonpartisan yeah. way, on getting things done. Yes, we can. I think that bill right here in the state uh, proves that we can come together and address these issues that are so impactful. And and I'm sure some of the the areas that you get pulled into, or, or some of the other factors, aren't necessarily even environmental factors. When you have uh, things like COVID going on, you, you have to shift gears. Or if we're in a time of war, money gets allocated in different ways. Um, and I know Emil, you could probably, as far as you know, through New Jersey, if you you could probably go through each governor, and if if the environment was more important to this governor or less important to that governor, and what it meant. Is it that hard to shift gears as, as you change through this throughout time where it becomes more important, less important, or there's other important issues that take precedent over, over what we're doing? Well, we've been pretty lucky in New Jersey. I mean, uh, of course, I, you know, I only, I, I only can go think back to the 80s, you know, and 
Governor Byrne passed the Pilots Protection Act and fill me there's other acts, but you know, Democratic Governor Byrne passed the Pilots Protection Act, Republican Governor Tom Kane passed the Freshwater Wetlands Protection Act, which is stronger than the federal act. And uh, we still use in New Jersey the the proper wetlands definition, which was weakened um, under the first George Bush uh, for, for the federal government. So we still actually use the, the proper wetlands definition where most of the country doesn't, almost all of the country doesn't. Okay. Um, if New Jersey had weakened its wetlands law the way the federal government did, we'd have lost approximately two thirds of all of our wetlands by definition. Um, and and it was actually Governor Whitman who commissioned that study because Governor Whitman was 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 uh, present, and we were worried about what would happen to our wetlands law. And I actually toured. Uh, Governor Whitman's farm and showed her what would be wetlands and what wouldn't be wetlands. Okay. You know, and that's a powerful statement right there. Right. And, um, and, and so we were able to hold on to our, our, our wetland definition in New Jersey. Um, Governor Whitman, Republican governor, you know, pushed forward huge amounts of money toward green acres I think the, the million acre initiative million acres or something I, I can't remember the exact words but you know and 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 billions of dollars were were added to the to the green acres program to acquire uh you know conservation lands uh, let's see who was governor next boy well governor florio was in there for a little while and of course maintained the you know funding for for the super fund in new jersey and you know green acres funding I'm trying to remember who was governor after Governor Whitman. Um, oh, Governor McGreevy passed yeah. the Highlands Act, the Highlands Preservation Act. Okay. Um, and that was a Democratic governor. Um, and then let's see. Also, let's see when when did Reggie pass the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative? That may have been oh Governor Corzine, perhaps. Somebody help me out. Um, and then. Uh, Governor Christie, I believe it was under Governor Christie when a stable source of funding for, for land acquisition was finally passed. And then, um, and now under Governor Murphy, we've, you know, made some significant strides against climate change and, and the Global Warming Response Act. And, you know, so we're, we're pretty lucky in New Jersey. We've had bipartisan support. I'm not going to say that everybody was perfect. They weren't. Yeah. Um, but we've been pretty lucky in that some of the big issues of the day, the, the advocates, the NGOs, and there's a slew of them, right? There's all the watershed associations and the and the uh, uh, the regional nonprofits and the statewide nonprofits. You know what uh, uh, Marty mentioned, Andy Wilner and the Baykeeper. You know we have Baykeepers and Riverkeepers and watershed associations and you know the various conservancies and land trusts. I mean, forms a pretty formidable group. Yeah. You know, so we're usually pretty good at getting some of the most important things to happen. Sometimes, you know, we don't. Sometimes, you know, we think a few things fall short. But for the most part, we've been pretty lucky in New Jersey in that things haven't been weakened yeah. um, like they have around the rest of the country. So um, I, I just, I, you know, I go places and I see wetlands being filled and destroyed. And I'm like, how can they, what, how, they could never do that in New Jersey. 
you know, because we still define wetlands properly. In many places, you know, there's no wetlands buffers. Uh, the wetland definition is weak. Swamps are being filled. They're not even called wetlands. It's 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 crazy what happens around the country. So. I um, yeah, I know we have we have property here that originally when when Don purchased it, it wasn't wetlands. But by the time we decided to look at it, it was redelineated as wetlands. So it's <laughs> which is fine with us. That's you know that's that's not an issue. But we you know we we keep touching on some of these great accomplishments, and and we can go into some of it if you want. But I kind of want to throw this to Bill in a different direction. Um, you know, when you think of federal accomplishments without government, you have national parks, the Clean Water Act, Oil Pollution Act, uh, National Environmental Policy Act. Locally uh, in New Jersey, New York, you have the New York City Million Tree Program, New Jersey Freshwater Wetlands Protection Act, uh, Pineland Protection Act. You know, and and personally, Pinelands Nursery doesn't exist without the Pinelands Protection Act or the Clean Water Act. Like without that. We we don't exist. So with all these restorations, it kind of created a whole a, a whole business, or not a business, but a a whole industry. Um, and I think a lot of us are here. We wouldn't be here if it if it wasn't for what the government was able to accomplish. So, Bill, I'm I'm curious, and I know you kind of threw some th- stuff at us before this started. Do you feel that we underestimate the importance, uh, the economic importance of restoration? I do, um, and only when this came up as a subject and we looked into it, we all looked into it a little bit, did I realize I'm trying to look at all the work that we do that's not related to government, not government funded, and it was, it was very little. Very few people say, let's restore this uh, Superfund site out of pocket. We're just going to do it out of the kindness of our heart. It's driven by regulations, and it's required by government, and, and all the stuff that we've been talking about leads to an amazing field that's really growing in restoration. And the thing is, friend, restoration is really good. It's not like it's money being spent. It generates a whole economy. We've done restoration jobs where, you know, it's a lot of jobs. Um, it, it puts money back into the economy. Every pizza place and deli in town is filled, you know, when we're doing all this restoration. So it's a generator. If I could read this a little bit about the Everglades Restoration Project. If, you, if you'll bear with me. Yes, go ahead. You show that investing $11.5 billion in Everglades restoration will result in $46.5 billion in gains to Florida's economy and create more than 440,000 jobs over the next 50 years. For every dollar invested in Everglades restoration, $4 are generated in economic benefits. And I know this is something that and and I know you commented after the episode that we had Dr. Sala on with the research in the fishing industry that they learned that they could make more money preserving the waters off of tourism and it actually improved fishing than just to let the fishermen gut it. So and it's that's a hard hard role to take to get people to realize that by hey it's it's more <laughs> it's it's more if we protect it and go less. And and even as we achieve this higher consciousness and all the studies are there, the restoration doesn't seem to stop. It's, it, it seems like there's more and not less. Um, so this is a, an industry that just keeps getting larger and larger. I don't see it tapering off or getting smaller. I don't know how everyone else feels about that. Well, I was on a, I was on a, uh, a webinar. I guess it wasn't a webinar as much as it was a public hearing about Liberty State Park. Okay. You know, here we are in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. 
uh, a huge restoration project is about to be undertaken on, you know, some area that was tainted with chromium and other things. And the people that were, I mean, it, you know, they were giving people only a few seconds to speak because there were so many members of the public that wanted to comment on how they needed that restoration, not just because, you know, they wanted Liberty State Park to be a little bit nicer. It's already beautiful. But they needed that restoration because if it wasn't for the outdoors in these urban areas, um, you know, especially during this last year, th these poor people would have had no place to go for any kind of peace of mind. I mean, you know, our parks have been mobbed. The, the visitation at our preserves has skyrocketed in the last year. You know, we've had to deal with parking problems and, you know, figuring out in innovative ways to, you know, keep people to be able to come but not be too close together. Um, and the state has some of the large state parks, you know, they've initially they had to shut down until they figured out what to do because it was it was so important to have places where people could go and, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitate themselves, you know, given given the massive strains that were being put on everybody's psyche. And, and it's continuing. Um, the other thing, I, I know, Marty, you might want to come, and I know you're involved in that massive project. I believe you're involved, right, in that massive project at the Harrison Avenue landfill in, in right. Camden. Now, I mean, By it's... the way, the, and I'm glad you brought up the Liberty State Park, but even the Camden project, I mean, Fran, those projects are being funded by the uh, natural resource damage assessment funds that were collected in compensation for other, you know, for impacts. So, okay. Again, there you have the connection. And, um, and the, know, that, that Camden project is important just for its location as well. That area oh, yeah. needs mean, that. Bill's been all over it, so I'll let him talk about it, but I'll just introduce it a second. And so that was a landfill that was um, – you know, uh, not properly closed and, you know, shut down in the 70s. And it was basically an eyesore and, and actually maybe a public health issue as well. And it's right on the confluence of, uh, or it's right on the Delaware River where the confluence, uh, where the um, Cooper River comes in. So um, they're transforming that into a park right now. And it's an amazing situation. Um, and it was a, a big undertaking by, um, by the state to fund that uh, uh, to the tune of something like 30 or 40 million dollars wow. of natural resource damage funds and 380,000 plants are going in there living shorelines and all this and I'll turn it over to Bill to talk about it but the same thing is happening at Liberty State Park and <clears throat> the connection between the economy and the environment is so clear in these places especially in the urban settings where it generates in Philadelphia the green infrastructure program is generating billions of dollars a year in the economy in this green infrastructure industry that is now, and it's improving people's uh, property values, and it's it's improving water quality, and all these things have a value to them when you start putting va dollar values to natural resource services. Like for instance, when I was at, um, I have the sheet here. When I was at Fish and Wildlife, running Fish and Wildlife, we put a sheet together, and I know this is out of date, but um, fishing and hunting and wildlife watching generates a four billion back then right yeah. generate four billion dollars to the state economy wow so there's you know it's 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 it very and that's what won the day when we were when we were arguing about superfund and uh and opa uh oil pollution act uh, reauthorization we told them it's not about hugging trees and bugs and bunnies it's about jobs it's about people's livelihoods and and uh it's about quality of life and and that won the day and 
and it still will win the day, and it still is. But Bill, do you want to talk about um, the Harrison? Before Bill talks thing? about that, before Bill talks about that, I just want to mention, I, I hope that someone is out there knowledgeable enough to do a study on how having open space has impacted people's health during this crisis, because that is going to be an astronomical number in yeah. terms of, you know, people avoiding having uh, mental health issues and other kinds of, of, you know, social, social problems that result from being cooped up and, and, you know, not having money coming in and that type of thing. I mean, I'm sure that the fact that there's been such good access to open space and places to go in New Jersey where you can walk, you know, and get to some place pretty easily with your family and that kind of thing. I mean, the, the, the urban parks, the suburban car parks, they've been jammed. And most of every one of those has happened because of Green Acres funding in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll you know, all those places. That's got to be an astronomical number that of, of, of problems that have been avoided because we have oh, yeah. a plethora of open space. I'll, I'll be honest. 2020 was a you know, it was a difficult year for everyone, and it was a difficult year for me in many ways, even going beyond COVID, uh, COVID-19. It was an extremely difficult year, and, and our open spaces were the one thing that helped me really get through it, me and my, my fiancé and my family, um, because that's how we spent all of our family time and all our weekends, um, and that reconnection – really helped with this podcast as well and and my the love for what i do and and my job without that it would have been a completely different year for me and that's just me i can't imagine how many other people have extremely similar stories to that and and further to what emil said and marty and like harrison avenue landfill and other open spaces not just mental health what about the giant sponge of these acres that when there's flooding and storm surge there's a green place for it to go and to be collected and not flood our home. Yeah. Our dunes and our beaches do such an amazing job, but we take it for granted. But when you pave things over, you see how, how bad it is. So Harrison Avenue landfill went from the worst thing in the neighborhood and the, one of the worst places in Camden to this gem. It's right on the river. There's bald eagles there uh, in the island that's right next to it. Um, tons of jobs were created. There's a whole center there where they have cultural center and they have dancing and, and um, amphitheaters. It's amazing. And guess what? Already the real estate is improving in the Kramer Hill area. It is now, instead of this dump, it is now Kramer Hill Regional Park. There's going to be transportation and buses going by and families and using the playgrounds and the channel, kayak channels and all of that. But the living shorelines are helping us with flooding and other green infrastructure things that really help our city. Yeah, there was another, I got to say, there was another project outside or get out of New Jersey for a minute in Wilmington called the South Wilmington Wetlands Park. If anybody's interested in Googling that, um, we worked on that with a company called Diamond Materials and the city of Wilmington did a great job of taking a, a brownfield that was uh, in, a, in an area that was flooding in an urban community where people were living and there are businesses and we turn that or you know we turn that into a park a wetlands park that is actually going to absorb this flooding much better and it's not going to result in people's getting uh you know uh combined sewage overflow in their basements anymore so wow. uh, same thing up at harrison and so and what's interesting and i'll just throw this out 
it's creating a new constituency for the support of conservation, I think, and restoration. Because like when I was at Fish and Wildlife, you know, we had our hunters, our anglers, the paddlers, the hikers, the birders, everybody was, you know, supportive of natural resource conservation and restoration. But now with climate right change and people are starting to see that if we restore their their town shoreline and their, their streams and make the water convey better and the wetlands absorb the, the storm waters better, people who are not really that weren't that interested in natural resources at that time are now becoming aware of the importance of these systems and now they're going to be supporting conservation and restoration into the future. Wow. And it's really cool. And that's what really gets us jazzed about it. So you, know, you mentioned uh, before uh, the Liberty State Park project that is now in design. And uh, that is going to help us to open up an area that's been you know, behind a rusty fence for decades um, that is contaminated when it is remediated. And then when the area is restored to woodlands and wetlands, freshwater ponds um, and recreation trails, Jersey City will have access to some 240 more acres, not just of open space, but of actual, um, you know, what, what we could call wildlands, right? There'll be forest and meadows as opposed to necessarily a lot of um, recreational ball fields. There's gonna be some component of it that will be that as well. But- and uh, wildlife comes right back, Carl. Like the wildlife is like, they don't read the papers. They are so desperate for habitat. They, we restore these areas, and like the next day, they're there. If you build yeah, and, it, right? Right. If you build yeah, it, they, they will come. come. Exactly. And I, I just want to mention that um, um, this, again, about legislation, what makes this possible is the Water Resources Development Act, which gives the Army Corps authority to work with the state of New Jersey. New Jersey provides the natural resource damage funds, right? Marty, you mentioned that. Uh, Army Corps is able to utilize those funds under their program, and then they require an additional federal partner under the Water Re Resource Development Act to act as the partner for the state. So the Army Corps can't act as its as the partner while it's accepting the funds to do the work. So NOAA actually became the federal partner for that project. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm involved in it as well in in a review capacity, a technical advisor capacity. But what I really enjoyed finding out was I did a, a study of how this will impact Jersey City's um, access to natural resources. And what I learned through the this little GIS study that I did is that when that 240 acres does become open and accessible again, it will double, literally double the amount of wildlands in Jersey City. Wow. Yeah. And, and the other wildlands that are currently available to Jersey City residents are largely from past mitigation and restoration projects. You have the, the Lincoln Park West project, which contributed 42 acres of wetlands uh, and, and uh, grasslands and trails. And then um, there's also uh, the chromium uh, site over in in, in Liberty State Park currently, which is some another, I think, I believe some 80 acres or so of restored wetlands there. So when you when you take all of it together, you <laughs> remarkably, this is yeah. going to have a tremendous impact for the, you know, and a beneficial one for the residents of Jersey City. And I will say, you know, regionally, because 
Liberty State Park is a regional park. Yeah. So you take all of Hudson County, and this is going to have a significant, you know, increase to all of Hudson County's access to um, to wildlands. And these are these are areas that really need this. They they need this, and and, and you, no one even really touched on how it how it improves our water quality or it improves the erosion problems in that area just by by creating that, especially in those locations. Um, I have three. We have about a half an hour left, and there's still three topics I want to cover. And the funny thing is, we kind of just touched on all three of them <laughs> within the last conversation. So I, I don't know that it matters which one I start with. But uh, Carl just brought up Army Corps of Engineers, and we've kind of mentioned them throughout. How important is the Army Corps of Engineers, and what's the importance of what they do for for restoration? Well. Um uh, first off, they um, they they have a boatload of engineers, <laughs> which is implied in their name. Literally, <laughs> literally. Um, I, as a landscape architect, I like to think that um, the services that my profession can provide is um, is additive to what and you know what civil engineers do, right? While they're doing the calculations and the mathematics to uh, to you know, tell us how what the volumes are for any amount of earth moving, and what the you know, and hydrologists at the Army Corps add a lot too as well. So when you're building wetlands, you want to ensure that you have the proper hydrology, the amount of water, where the water flows. So they they bring those kinds of services where they can do the modeling okay. for the hydrologic modeling. Now, the landscape architect adds an extra dimension. We we also have those capabilities of doing you know, quantitative calculations, but we also bring in that biological. Uh, Bill and I, trained landscape architects, know our plant material very well. And we know what plant material makes sense in what places and where we are, we understand um, uh, the necessity and the importance of bringing in local genotypes, that, that being plants that are appropriate to that particular region. Okay. And um, we understand what their, you know, culturally, cu culturing needs are. We understand what the soil requirements have to be and the nutrient requirements. Um, and so um, that's what we bring to the table. Um, and so I think uh, the Army Corps of Engineers um, largely has uh, for us uh, enormous capabilities in doing um, kind of the the uh, the the underlying um, big picture calculations and okay. getting soil moved from here and there. Because our business is a lot about where you're moving things to. <laughs> so, soil in, soil yeah. out. Bad soil out, good, you know, quality yeah. soils in. Can uh, I add a plug? Can I add a plug about the EPA? Sure, please. EPA used to be an enforcement agency and like you can't do this, you can't do this, and you're fined or whatever. And then I'm like, wait a minute, maybe we should be take a proactive role. And the EPA is leading in, in innovative ways and putting on workshops to help people be compliant. Instead of finding them, they guide and teach. And, and, and EPA has been so proactive in making this a, a better situation. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I, got, I, I want to throw in something for the core, too. So the core, you know, has been maligned in the past for you know, channelizing rivers and, and hardening, you know, uh, hardening uh, shorelines and things like that. But 
Um, and, you know, they were doing that because that was the way we did things back then. That's the way engineers were taught. And, and that now, was the will um, of the people. That's what right. the people wanted. Yeah. And that's what the people want. Now, um, with Werda and, um, you know, they've, and I noticed this after uh, Hurricane Sandy, especially because what happened after Hurricane Sandy was really transformative as well. It's kind of like the oil spill got us into natural resource then. Really got us into the idea of green infrastructure and nature-based um, restoration. And uh, right after Sandy, I was contacted by a friend who was in the D.C. area in the Corps. And she said, hey, you know, we're going to fly in um, into uh, uh, the Army camp at Seagirt, and we know you're in Manasquan area. Could you take us around Manasquan and show us what happened and tell us what you think? Um, because I started working uh, on green infrastructure with the Conservation Fund at the yeah. time. What you think would be good green infrastructure uh, restoration opportunities in your town, which is kind of a microcosm for a lot of the coastal towns. And Emil saw what Emil came down to Manasquan okay. and saw the devastation and helped us with a lot of folks down there that were, uh, you know, needed help at the time. And so they flew in, and I thought it was just going to be some, you know, some lower level guy. They yeah. flew in the, the commander of the Corps, right, wow. in a Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopter. And I took him around with the town council, <laughs> and we, we showed him what to do. And you know what? Now they have, and they were already starting this, but they have a nature-based program at, uh, I think it's called URTIC. I don't know what it stands for. Um, but um, uh, it's, I'm sorry, an Engineering Research and Development Center. Uh, and they're really, uh, you know, really working hard to um, innovate new ways to deal with uh, coastal resiliency and restoration associated with that. Um, some hard structures and some soft stuff. So uh, we got to give kudos to the Corps. And now they're also uh, looking at dredge material as not as a waste to be disposed of, but also to be used beneficially to build up our wetlands that are sinking, that are being inundated. Um, and then we're coming in and planting them, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, the core is really important right yeah. now for this. Yeah, we've seen that at Poplar Island down in Maryland, rebuilding that whole, uh, right. Right. you know, to a to an incredible, uh, it's not a true restoration, but it, just the incredible ecosystem they're creating there is phenomenal. Um, right. I kind of right. want to, we, we've done a really good job at kind of doing the past and the present Wait, and, before you yeah. before you do that, Fran, yes. why did you say that something's not a true restoration? Well, well know you know, it was it, it they're they're making it salt marsh, and even though the original pop Poplar Island had salt marsh, it wasn't all salt salt marsh. There it was a pine island, and it's it's pretty much all salt marsh now with the way it's being recreated. So it's they're well, not because it, they're, it went they're from, predicting they're predicting that because of sea level rise, they're going to need more salt marsh. Yeah, it 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 was originally a thousand acres that eroded down to fifteen acres, and they're rebuilding it as a twenty year project. Uh, in in 20 phases of of rebuilding that island but it's it's not going to look the same as it did before it's it's so taking what? on a different structure no it's no and i'm not saying that's a bad thing just saying that it's different it's yeah. and, and jamaica bay carl how many acres of jamaica bay were restored right these islands were yeah. shrunk down to nothing right i mean you know salt marsh is going to be one of the habitats that we have you know we're going to end up losing the most of in the next you know 50 to 100 years yeah so if we're restoring salt marsh, Excellent. just because it wasn't salt marsh before, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, right. we we have to you know we have to look seventy five years out now when we try to think of you know what we're going to build. Yeah. By the way, before you move on, Fran, just yeah, sure. Uh, and I'll just you can't leave out Noah. Noah has innovated so many different um, 
restoration approaches. And they got into the whole, uh, you know, uh, resiliency and, you know, natural resource damage uh, restoration early on. And so, and there's a lot of good work coming out of NOAA. Um, they're, they're one of the more nimble uh, uh, federal agencies. They get, they really get jump on a thing when something happens. And, uh, you know, we're lucky to have Carl here and, and all those good people at NOAA working with the core because it, it really takes like a layer cake. This is what the conservation fund used to say, a layer <laughs> cake of people to make these projects happen. Yeah. And then a layer cake of funding to line up to do all these projects. Exactly. And, and, you know, without people, without partners and, you know, and it's relationships. It's like, we know Carl, we know, we know Emil, we know, and we know people in other states. And, and pe when they get to know each other, then they work together better. And without all these agencies layer caking this funding and layer caking their expertise, none of this stuff would happen. No, and I, I keep- That's a nice plug from Marty. And Marty, let <laughs> well, me tell you, hey. I had knee surgery from a basketball injury just so I could stay nimble. There you go. <laughs> I don't want to be But you, you, you know, and and here you have from from all different industries, everyone that's worked together and communicate communicated well together. I can't speak for any other states, but it seems the communication in New Jersey is fantastic between uh, cross industries and NGOs and 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 so forth. I I love the fact that how well you each know each other and your friends outside of work as well, which is amazing. So. Um, you know, I, one of the, the places I wanted to go was where we need to go in the future. And when Emil was on the podcast last, he mentioned. Wait, I got, you got you to stop there for a second. Yeah. Because I, you're, when you say we're friends outside of work, let me say it's not easy. Bill's you know? <laughs> <laughs> a Yankee fan. I don't know how. I don't know how we managed to stay friends. I mean, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we're all brothers, friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, Emil, when you were on the podcast last time, you mentioned carbon credits, and and we kind of tabled that. Maybe this is the place to bring that back up, where you're saying <laughs> that that the government should issue carbon credits, and and I just wanted to throw that topic out there and let everyone kind of discuss that. Well, let me just lead. Let me just lead that because. Okay. There's a there's a there's a fellow in the Bureau of Forestry in New Jersey who's one of the smartest guys I know. His name is Bill Zipsy, and he works for John Sacco, who's been mentioned a bunch of times today. And he's he knows all about this stuff, and he wants to figure out how to, you know, uh, do the setup work so that we can have carbon markets to protect our forests in New Jersey. And it's a it's a difficult task. Um, but the thing that's astounding is, and I don't know, this might be data from a couple of years ago, but the state of Maine, right? Mm -hmm. The sun, the state of Maine basks in the sun all year and the trees, you know, sequester carbon. Well, they harvest as much carbon as they sequester. Their net carbon game in the state of Maine is zero, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they harvest one to one as much as they, as the trees photosynthesize. In New Jersey, it's seven to one. And we're losing forest to development. We're losing forest to, uh, you know, uh, land use conversion. And yet, because of the fact that we don't just, you know, have a paper industry in New Jersey or whatever, you know, and our forests are now, you know, between, I mean, I've been measuring a lot of the trees in some of our forests in the New Jersey highlands, and some of them are 150 years old, some of them are 120 years old. And they're growing like crazy. They're sequestering carbon as fast as they ever did, if not faster, because of the warmer temperatures and the extra rainfall. 
And so in New Jersey, we're sequestering seven times more carbon than we are uh, taking away by either forestry practices or land conversion. So there's a tremendous potential there, right? For both all of the land that we've set aside for green acres with green acres money, these billions of dollars buying all these forests for the last 60 years, none of them are actually protected, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can still go and get a permit to clear cut anything in New Jersey, except our few tiny little natural areas, which are practically non-existent. And wetlands. And, and, wetland. and, and, and so there's tremendous potential there for New Jersey to bring money into the state to do all these other restoration projects if we can set up a carbon market. And Bill wants to do it. And it's just another one of these tasks that like Marty and, and others talked about before, we don't have the personnel. We need to collect more data. We need to figure out, how, you know, what are all the forests actually doing? The data needs to be much more specific. And then private landowners could reap the benefits of that too. So that's a huge issue that we need to tackle. Um, you know, some states are starting to do it. New Jersey's behind on that, but we have tremendous potential. And I don't know much about it, how you go about calculating it, you know. Um, uh, but, I, but I do know that we need to figure it out. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I agree. And again, this is another way to bring private capital into into uh, the arena to do restoration and, and, and preservation and conservation as well. Um, but there's a lot of really uh, smart folks that are, are looking at this. And in fact, there's even farming practices and ways that you can um, uh, work on the soils where the soils can sequester carbon as well. There's actually so, a greater potential there. Right, right. I mean, if you did that across the Midwest, I mean, you might even be able to reverse things, uh, you know, uh, in terms of climate change from what I've been from what I've been hearing and reading. If so, we can turn farms from dirt back to soil, basically. Right, exactly. And, exactly. and the other benefit of that is, too, is that the pollination crisis, we could go a long way towards solving the pollinator crisis by having a living soil instead of you know these chemical laden dirt farms right um right. you know there are some chemicals out there that are probably worse than ddt that we're not addressing right now so especially, no especially neonicotinamides which mm. could be you know one of the biggest problems anywhere right now around the world many countries have banned them and we haven't addressed them yet noah is looking at um um the potential for blue carbon programs. What's blue carbon? <laughs> but oh, that, that's carbon that can be sequestered in the marine environment. And, but the carbon cycle is very complicated. Um, what, one of the things we can do in the marine environment is, is try to invest in bringing back uh, submerged aquatic vegetation into our bays, Barnegat Bay, Delaware Bay, Raritan Bay, all were places where there was extensive beds of seagrass Yield and those those sequester carbon because they you know because of their root zones right they're herbaceous material they die off in the winter so there's some net export of carbon out of the desiccating um leaves um when those die off in the cold weather right but then as uh in the growing season they are removing carbon and putting it down in the root and rhizome layers so it's really in the soil that you're hoping to capture the carbon but uh you know it's a 
it's a cycle with a lot of components in it. And when you look at, say, oyster restoration, you're realizing that, well, it really is all about balance, right? Because oysters produce uh, carbon gases. They, they release CO2 in the formation of their shells. So they're actually net exporters of, of carbon into the atmosphere and into the ocean environment. So really, we can't do without oysters. We can't just eliminate some organisms that actually produce CO2. <laughs> so really what it's all about is getting back to some kind of balance that we had when we had these extensive seagrass beds and when we had extensive oyster beds. And of course, NOAA is trying to, to return both of those organisms back into the marine environment. So it's all about the balance. <laughs> You know, when, when I when I do a, a design project at school, we add a layer. So let's say you're designing a park in Philadelphia. We add a layer of carbon credits. And we basically, there's a, there's a kind of a calculator of how many tons of carbon are sequestered by meadow, by uh, scrub shrub, by wetland forest, by upland forest. And it's a rough calculator, but basically how many acres multiplied by this number gives you carbon that's being sequestered whether there's a market or not the forest is 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 working for us as we speak and that just shows you how important our forests are and the need to to keep improving that and and building more is it but is that still an uphill battle you know and and salt marshes where they they sequester a lot of carbon and they're and, and they're really at risk yeah and it's it's you know, it's who was it? I, th- I think it was Elon Musk. I think that was offering someone, you know, if they could come up with a uh, a great way to sequester, like he was offering a prize if you could come up with a great way to sequester carbon. And it's like, why don't we? <laughs> why don't you just take that money and improve our forests, improve our it's wetlands? Photosynthesis, <laughs> carbon dioxide out of the air and puts it into plants and soil and gives off oxygen mm-hmm. and makes food for all of our. Hey, 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 Frank, can I ask a question sure. to you and, and, and Bill and everybody? Yeah. So, you know, this is a native plant show, right? So yes. Do native plants sequester more carbon than invasives? I don't know. That's a good I question. I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's probably all dependent on what habitat you're looking at and what species you're looking at. But, you know, like right now in New Jersey, if if a farmer abandons a field, it's only going to grow up in invasive species, right? Because it's mineral dirt, it's the pH is raised, they're earthworms chewing up organic material, um, you know, and so it's going to get colonized by honeysuckle and Russian olive and all these things that we don't like because they 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 provide structure, but they don't they don't provide uh, a food chain for insects, right? Because almost no insects yeah. live on any of them. So, but I mean, I think they're sequestering, they're growing fast and the deer don't eat them as fast. So yeah. when you add deer into the equation, right? The deer eat all the natives. They don't eat all these other things as much. And so the other things take over and they sequester carbon. Um, so that's, yeah. a, that's a neat, that's a, what, what, what are the, what's the word I'm looking at? A service, right? An yeah. Ecological yeah. Service. The reason why I ask is because one of the issues, and I know you all know this, is that, you know, like when I was at Fish and Wildlife, we're managing, I don't know, 350,000 acres mm-hmm. of land. Uh, parks had 470,000 acres of land. I mean, we're blessed to have 1.5 million acres of open space in the state, actually more public open space than the state of Maine. Um, and, but 
you know, we're, we don't have the resources to manage those lands correctly. Uh, and that was a struggle for, it's still a struggle for the agency. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how we can, you know, maybe this carbon, creating this carbon market could give us the resources to actually create almost like this, uh, this, uh, this great cycle, right? Of yeah. sequestering carbon and then getting more investment and, you know, spurring yeah. all of this. Right? And, and Emil had a great point on the, on, and we actually discussed it on the last episode of The Buzz. You know, when you look at it, there's all this study where it say this invasive may do this one function fantastic. You know, maybe right. this invasive sequesters carbon better than any of our native plants, but it's only doing one thing well instead of doing everything good. And and we're native, like if it's not providing to the food web, if it's if it's not doing a lot of these other things, you're not creating. You're you're creating an ecosystem that's a monoculture that that has one function instead of twenty functions. So. Um, you know, I, I'm always torn when I see some of these studies that say this plant does this well, you know, and there's studies with Phragmites that way. Um, hey, Phragmites holds the soil and it, it, uh, it stops erosion, but it's not providing anything to the food web and it's, and that's detrimental in, in my concern. So even if it sequestered carbon better than anything else, it still lacks on so many other levels. I don't feel that that's a benefit. Just because it does that one thing well, but every everything species specific. I mean, and then there's also short term and long term. You know, I mean, if we if we want to win the short term battle, you know, in reducing CO2, atmospheric CO2, maybe some of the Phragmites stands and some of the Russian olive stands, maybe it's okay to have them around for a little while until we figure out a better way to restore them. Yeah, you know, but ultimately. You know, if you walk through a Russian olive forest on the Piedmont of New Jersey, there's no soil forming. I mean, you know, it's it, it, it's just amazing. That and there's no wildlife. There's no there's wildlife. There's no wildlife. Well, you know, unfortunately, there's a couple of fruit-eating birds that spread the seeds all over the place, but there's no insect food chain. Right. Um, but, but, the, but the most amazing thing is that in these stands of invasive species, you don't get soil. You yeah. get, you know, you get high pH, you get earthworms, you get mineralized dirt and worm casts and the erosion is terrible. Well, that in itself the then, that by, in, even though the land is covered by plants. That in itself means that that's, that soil's not sequestering carbon either. Right. So, so there you have it, right? So you know, that's why we- that's, I mean, that's one example. There might be another invasive species. You know, for example, I'm sure you could find some non-native grass that if you took one of these fields and turned it into some sort of a grass meadow, and it might be a non-native grass, it probably could put down deep roots and sequester carbon. Of course, I'd always try to prefer the native warm season grass, because at least, you know, then you're going to have a food chain along with that structure and that other function. Awesome. All right. I, I, I hate to interrupt, but we're down to 10 minutes. So um, I want to make sure we all get to throw in what our favorite native plant is and our final thought. Emil, you've already you got to do this before unless you've changed your mind all right (laughs) so um bill we'll start with you favorite native plant me yeah yes you um i'm gonna do doug talamy and you know i i'm all about the food chain i'm all about habitat so i'm going with the oak so i'll pick red oak which is the state plant the state tree of new jersey it's it it houses more it supports more insects which builds more food webs than any other woody species awesome 
Awesome. Marty, how about you? Oh, he stole my thunder on that one. I would have gone with the oak. You can you have the oak too. too. That's you know fine. I love, I love cardinal flowers. Um, that is a great just, one. They're really beautiful. But you know what I'm going to say? I love Phragmites. You know why? Because it really got people into restoration. Ooh. Oh. So let's just put it that way. It's not a native. Or yeah. Some people say it might be native, but let's say that. All right. Let's say, you know, it, it's just like the oil spills. There's, you know, there's a silver lining to it. It got people going it's my it was a first invasive that i um that i ever dealt with uh Mar- and, marty um, a good part of my career is the meadowlands converting phragmites right, to spartina right, which exactly gave me a lot of nice income which kept my wife talking to me but it really you know it really got people it got people's juices flowing about restoration all right really did. all right carl i think you're on mute carl yeah carl you mute it yourself you're on mute Okay. All right. There you go. Bill said it. He said the word Spartina. I'm going to have to go with uh, Spartina Alternaflora because, you know, Bill's wife is counting on him to make a living. And I must say that uh, Spartina Alternaflora has provided me with a career for many, many years. Uh, It keeps our wives talking to us, right? That check coming in. It's provided me a career. Without Spartina, Pinelands wouldn't be where we're at today. Amen. I have field collected the seeds. I have propagated Spartina. I have seen it grow through, you know, through, uh, I've, I've, I've taken care of it right through its nursery growing phase. And then I've popped them right into the ground on the edges of um, wetlands throughout New York and New Jersey. And I, I have to say it's, it's the plant that has helped me to become a restoration ecologist and a landscape architect. And uh, I don't know what I would do without little old Spartina. That is Amen, a, brother. Or, Amen or, to that. Or, or Sparabolus Alterniflorus. As they not do. of its new name. <laughs> they not do that. Yeah. All right, Emil, your turn. Uh, well, I'm going to go with the single most fire-adapted species in the world, which is the pitch pine. Oh. But, but, the, but the dwarf phenotype. Okay. The pitch pine, uh, right? Nice. Which people who, you know, there are people listening to this all over the world. I know there are all sorts of incredible destinations out there in the world that you have on your bucket list, but one of them should be the dwarf pine plains of New Jersey's Pine Barrens, because you can look from horizon to horizon, and in some areas, the trees aren't more than six feet tall, and they're hundreds and hundreds of years old. And most of their biomass is 90%, 95% underground. They've survived literally centuries of fire every five to 10 years. You can't kill them. The only thing that can kill them is a bulldozer. And um, they have serotonous cones. The cones don't open up until they're heated to 140 degrees when a fire sweeps through. They, ba- they basically are a tree living in a prairie. <laughs> And they're the most incredible thing you've ever seen. So I would agree with that. I would agree with that. All right. So this is time of the show. We kind of give everyone a final thought. Just to summarize, you can plug something. Uh, you can bring up something that we hadn't touched on. Uh, you, you have a, a minute or two where the floor is yours, and you can say anything you want. Emil, I'm going to start with you. Anything I want. Anything you want. <laughs> oh. <Uh-oh. laughs> 
Oh, Notice I waited till the end of the show to give you that <laughs> that option instead of the beginning of the show. Well, this this is not something that's going to save the world or save us from climate change or anything like that. But I think um, somehow, desperately, we need to reach people who think that destroying the environment especially with monster trucks and off-road vehicles is their right. Um, you know, going off-road, and I mean, you can just watch any, you know, sporting event and you see it, uh, you know, um, what's the word, romanticized in commercials, destroying sand dunes, destroying wetlands, destroying streams. It's, it's just absolutely horrible what's going on right now. And the state of New Jersey is almost powerless to do anything about it because of a lack of personnel, lack of enforcement. Um, it's dangerous. Some of the, uh, Marty could tell the story, I think, of when a conservation officer was run down by one of these people who was uh, destroying habitat and, and severely injured. It's just a terrible problem. Um, and, and there's just got to be a way to reach these folks and, and convince them that they're doing a crime against both humanity and nature. And it's just uh, something that I wish I could figure out a way to, to make a bigger difference on that. Awesome. Thank you for bringing that up. Carl, I'm going to let you go next in case you need to run as soon as, as, soon as you go. All right. Well, I'm going to go with bulkheads. All right. Bulkheads. Why bulkheads? Um, bulkheads replace natural shorelines. Bulkheads harden natural shorelines. My favorite plant, Spartina, lives on the edge of the waterway between land and water, right? And what does a bulkhead do? It, it replaces all of that. All of the functions that happen in that area between the land, that land-water interface, which is the most productive area on Earth, wherever you go, the land-water interface hosts probably the, the greatest diversity the, and has the greatest benefit to an enormous number of species, right? What's a bulkhead? A bulkhead is nothing more than a dam between a dam that replaces, that renders the land water interface um, incapable of hosting that incredible diversity, richness and abundance of species. So my pet peeve today Bulkheads. Not to even mention the the energy, increased energy that it it, it creates and, and what it does downstream of just the, the replacing that there, the, the erosion and the energy it creates and issues downstream and how it destroys <laughs> destroys those those areas that that weren't bulkheaded. So it, it doesn't just replace there, it destroys as well. So it's sending all the problems downstream. Yes. Yes. Perfect. All right, Marty, your, your turn. So, um, I, I don't, I don't really have a pet peeve, but, um, I will say this, that, uh, first of all, thank you for this. Really appreciate oh, the and, opportunity. Um, thank you for coming on you and everybody. It's a kind of, a, it's a real honor actually. Um, um, I just, I'm hopeful. I see a lot of good things coming out of DEP right now. Um, the uh, Assistant Commissioner Mazai uh, put out a, uh, they're putting out regulations that's going to require green infrastructure and uh, nature-based approaches 
Uh, we have stormwater utilities that are going to be coming around. I mean, there are things that I think that could be done more so. Um, ways to drive private capital into this because, so that government doesn't have to be the only one funding it. There are companies out there that want to do these things. They have environmental social governance. Uh, they're just looking for the projects, right? They're looking for the programs to help fund. So if we can kind of match these things up, I mean, there's also uh, coastal resiliency issues that we're going to have to really focus on. I live at the coast. I've seen what happened during Sandy. I lived it. Um, you know, maybe there's ways to create, take the wetland banking uh, approach and create resiliency banks, you know, where, um, you know, if you're going to build at the, co at the coast and uh, there's some way to fund a, a fund that where communities can, can uh, you know, uh, deal with these issues um, uh, that we're going to be needing to deal with uh, at the coast. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, uh, I see a lot of good things happening. We're finally getting it. We, we know how to put a dollar value to a, an oil duck now, uh, thanks to a lot of people and Carl's and, and uh, John Sacco's folks uh, at the state. And we're doing really good things with the natural resource damage program that we started. And um, it's, um, you know, uh, we have some big challenges, but I think with people like, you know, Bill and Carl and Emil out there and all the other groups working towards this, I really think it's, you know, we could tackle these problems. They're not insurmountable. Um, and you know, even even the climate issue, I think uh, we could tackle that. But uh, with, with people working together, all right, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's that's what I think. You know, I'm I'm hoping that that will occur in the next couple of years, and we'll see a good some some good progress. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, anytime. Thank you, Bill. Go ahead. All right, my quick message: restoration works. We we. I, I always, I've often said I never met a landfill I didn't like. Not that I like landfills, but when you close them and clean them up and restore them, and by the way, you have to clean them up under very strict laws or super funds or brownfields. What do you put back? You don't put back houses. You don't put back roads. You put back natural open space. So there's this, there's $4.2 trillion back, backlog worldwide on sites that can be restored. We know what to do. The genie's out of the bottle. We can restore areas and give wildlife back. They can give back something. So Harrison Avenue landfill is now this wonderful treasure for the city of Camden. Fresh Kills landfill, 2,200 acres. The worst thing on landfill is now gonna be this great park that'll never be disturbed. And so restoration is, is fantastic and it's a, a great economic driver. And it is, uh, we're so happy to have it. Awesome. Thank you. Before I give my final thought, I just want to make sure I say thank you to everyone here. Today was a complete education. The the the, the brain power on this on this uh, podcast today is just overwhelming, and I hope it's the same for our listeners. Uh, you have a lot to think about, and and we could we could go on for hours, and and this could probably spin off into three other rooted discussions. But um, this has been a lot of uh, good, and the, the amount of uh, restoration power between all of us here has been phenomenal and it's my hopes is and and restoration really is the band-aid on the the tail end that we get to the point where we're you know as much more energy is being put on the the um preventative side than the fixing side that we get to the point where we can prevent a lot of this instead of repairing all of our damage but we've done a lot of damage <laughs> over the years and we're still learning about the i'm sure there's something we have no idea that we're causing damage right now that we are and we'll learn it five ten years from now and we'll fix that so um 
but this just proves that anything can be done. You, we, there's, there's a lot of acres of land that has been restored because of the people that are here in this room and, and working together. And it wouldn't have happened if, if any of these pieces weren't here, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. So, um, that's my final thought. And this is a first for me. I have to read my outro without my partner, Tom. I missed, I'm, I'm going on the record and saying, Tom, I don't like doing this without you. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. You couldn't be here for this one. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to, uh, our rooted discussion, government's role in restoration. For more information, uh, you can visit native plants, healthy planet website, and we're going to post links for everyone here, uh, for their organizations where you can learn more. Um, we want to thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. We also need to give a big thank you to RJ Comer for contributing brand new theme music to Rooted Discussion, Smothered. Make sure you listen uh, or download his music at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you consume your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and we have a brand new custom URL, Pinelands Nursery at YouTube. Uh, don't forget about our question and comment line. Please call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it and answer it on a future episode of The Buzz. Let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, I know a lot of the the gentlemen in on this uh, podcast are members. We're up to, I think, 300 members strong. The, the conversation has been going great, so we're going to keep that going. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. I, I need to take a break. I'm, I'm getting <laughs> you can also check us out at Apple Podcast, uh, and you make sure you leave a five-star review for us there. Or you can also tell us that we're too chatty, either or. Uh, hit subscribe while you're there. You can also listen at Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Uh, I want to thank everyone. I am Fran. Thank you again for everyone for listening, and thank you to all of our guests. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, coming up on the next buzz, we will be talking about graminoids to follow up on the Forbes uh, episode of the buzz that we did last week. So until then, everyone, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.